Good evening. It is good to be back with you. I was at Red River, New Mexico last week, part of the encampment. Enjoyed my week there. It was the exact opposite of here, cold and rainy. And uh, I got to see a lot of good friends. Uh, I serve on the board of Red River Family Encampment, so did some work while I was there as well. And I'm so, so grateful that we have ministers here to step in, especially Blake, who did a phenomenal job. I know because I watched the lesson did a phenomenal job, and I'm so grateful to him. And Mateo, I know, did a great job because I listened to him as well. And I'm getting texts while I'm at Red River from Zane and Libby saying, hey, Blake did a great job, Mateo's doing a great job, so thank you guys so much. And then I'm sitting at the coffee shop, my regular Saturday morning routine yesterday, drinking my coffee, eating my blueberry muffin, and I get invaded by a bunch of teenage girls from Oldham Lane who are having a Bible study set up by Stephanie. So thank you so much for doing that. I mean, our interns are doing an awesome job. We've got a great thing going here. So grateful for our people here and all the wonderful things that are going on. And to top it all off, did y'all notice Tyler Yeager is here, our intern from last summer? Tyler loved Abilene so much, he moved here. Seriously, he moved here. He is going to be teaching at Jim Ned. He loved Oldham Lane and Abilene so much. He moved here. He's going to be with us, and we're going to put him to work. And I'm excited for that as well. I met Tyler 10 years ago at Red River. It's been a long time ago. So we've been friends for a while, and I'm so excited to have him here as well. Excited that you're here as we start a new series tonight called The Hall of Flaw. We often look at Hebrews 11 as the Faith Hall of Fame, but one thing that many of the people listed in that Faith Hall of Fame had in common is they all failed at something. And I think that's encouraging to us, and I hope this series is encouraging to you as well. You know, our superheroes have changed a lot over the years. When I was growing up, Superman was the coolest superhero. He was handsome. He had, uh, you know, quickness, speed. Uh, he could fly, which, I mean, let's face it, that's the best superhero ability that there is, right? Uh, he, was, he was a black and white kind of guy. There was no gray area. He stood for the right things. Good was good. Evil was evil. He hardly did any wrong, and if he did wrong, it was only because he was trying to, you know, do right, and, you know, he, was, he had the best of intentions. But there was no doubt who was the good guy and who was the bad guy, and that's, that's kind of changed over the years. Now he's fighting Batman for some reason, and, you know, uh, Batman is the Dark Knight, and it's, it's hard to even know if our superheroes are really good, are they really bad, you know, you got Deadpool and Daredevil and some of these superheroes that are edgier, they're darker. You know, what's that all about? Now the line is, is, is fading, and it's not so much black and white as there's a lot of gray area. In the pursuit of justice, you know, they seem to be hindered by their own imperfections. Our superheroes seem to be deeply flawed. And in some ways, I guess that's good because we can relate. We like to be able to relate to our heroes. One of my heroes, if you can call him that, is Steve Ranella. Anybody know who Steve Ranella is? You ever watch Meat Eater on Netflix? So he's an outdoorsman that I look up to. He also has a podcast called Meat Eater. And uh, Steve Ranella goes on all these hunting excursions, whether they be in Alaska or Wyoming, or, you know, he's based in Montana and he hunts elk and, and mountain goats and pronghorns, whatever it may be. And what I like about the show is that sometimes he misses. Sometimes he doesn't have a kill shot. Sometimes he shoots the elk with a gut shot with a bow and arrow, and he has to go track it down, and he feels bad about it. Sometimes he doesn't kill anything, and the show ends that way. They didn't kill anything. 
Sometimes he, you know, like one time he lost the sights on his gun. That's something I would do. And, and I appreciate the fact that they don't hide the imperfections and that he's open and honest about as much as he would like to be a great outdoorsman, he still makes mistakes. We love our heroes. And we love the idea that there is someone with power and determination and skill to change the world, but still there's some imperfection. We can relate to that. We like when they look like us, when they're somewhat troubled, when they have their own issues going on. And that's how we need to view people in Scripture, with admiration and appreciation, but also with an attitude that says, that could be me. I I could be like that. Even though I've messed up, I can still accomplish good for God. Because I think so often we read the Bible with appreciation and admiration, but not so much with application. Can we see ourselves being that person? Moses had his share of imperfections. We'll talk about him later on in this series. But he was the humblest man on the face of the earth. Do we read about Moses and say, well, I want to be the humblest person on the face of the earth. You know, we we look at people like, like David, who is a man after God's own heart. And do we say, well... I want to be a man after God's own heart. Do we filter out the bad and keep the good? The Bible is a book of failures. And over and over again, we see God using people in ways that are absolutely tremendous, even though they have dealt with tremendous defeat in their lives. I think about people like Paul, how he would be received today. Paul would be canceled in our culture today. You know what? Cancel culture would have a field day with people like Paul or Peter or Samson or Moses and others. And I'm so glad that God doesn't buy into cancel culture and canceling people who make mistakes. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for a God who doesn't give up on us. And and I'm grateful for a God who left us a book that is honest about the failures of his people. So in Hebrews chapter 11, we find this chapter that's commonly referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame. I think it could just as easily be called the Hall of Flaw because many of the names listed here have warts associated with them. Whether we're talking about Moses, Abraham, Rahab, Samson, certainly the gentlemen that we're talking about tonight. And over the next few weeks, I want us to spend some time looking at some of these Hall of Famers and illuminating what they all had in common. They all failed forward. And that's something that we can learn from and hopefully buy into. Failure was not the end of their story, and therefore it doesn't have to be the end of our story either. So as you read through Hebrews 11, you can kind of look at it with me and skim it with me. I want you to notice what is highlighted about these individuals. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, And became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he left, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
what's highlighted here is not their failure. They all had failures, but that's not what's highlighted here. In other words, the Holy Spirit didn't deem it necessary to bring up the weak moments. Only the strong. Only their faith. And, and I think the reason why is because it didn't matter anymore. Those things had been forgiven and forgotten. Those were over with. It didn't hinder them. They still became great warriors of faith. And that's what was highlighted. That was the truth that needed to be told. That's encouraging to me to know that I can also be in the Faith Hall of Fame despite my shortcomings. That in the end, the only thing that gets remembered is my faith, not my failures. Anybody remember uh, Bill Buckner? That name sound familiar? If you know anything about baseball, you know Bill Buckner. Back in 1986, in Game 6 of the World Series against the New York Mets, Bill Buckner's Boston Red Sox had a 3-2 lead, and a slow roller was hit to Bill Buckner. All he had to do was step on the bag, and the inning would be over. And instead, it went between his legs, and run scored, tied the game. They ended up losing that game. They ended up losing Game 7 and ended up losing the World Series. And Bill Buckner will always be remembered in Red Sox lore as the one who cost them the series, even though there were others that made a lot of mistakes along the way. In fact, there was another game that they could have won and they didn't. But still, he is always remembered for that one moment in time. In fact, there uh, is folly associated with his name. If you pull a Bill Buckner, it means that you had a chance to do something easy and you messed it up. And of course, if you know anything about the Red Sox, you know that for many years, they dealt with the curse of the Bambino, as they called it, and uh, they've since won some World Series. But uh, before winning the World Series, uh, a few years back, they dealt with this curse, as they called it, and they felt like Bill Buckner uh, only added to that curse and to their disparity. What a lot of people don't realize or fail to emphasize is that Bill Buckner had a solid career. He was an all-star. He was the National League batting champion in 1980. And he accumulated over 2,700 hits in a career that spanned 20 years. Despite these respectable numbers, he will always be remembered as the GOAT in Game 6 of the 1986 World Series. But on the other hand, you have a guy by the name of Joe Namath. And Joe Namath is really only remembered for one iconic moment. When he predicted that his upstart New York Jets would defeat the mighty Baltimore Colts led by Johnny Unitas in the Super Bowl. And they did. He predicted it, and they won. Now, if you know anything about Joe Namath, you know he was cocky, he was brash, he uh, wore fur coats on the sideline, he was a pretty arrogant dude. He even wrote a book one time that said, I can't wait until tomorrow because I get better looking every day. But what a lot of people don't realize about Joe Namath or fail to emphasize, he wasn't that great. At least his numbers don't bear it out. You know, even though the sporting news listed him as number 96 on the 100 greatest football players of all time. He retired with 77 wins and 108 losses. For his career, he threw 173 touchdowns and 220 interceptions. And yet he is remembered for that one iconic moment. Life can be like that. Fame and infamy can be fickle. And the court of public opinion has some pretty shaky standards. And one moment, one decision can make or break you. We tend to remember David because of two moments in his life. When he defeated 
the giant Goliath and when he was defeated by the giant of sin. There is no hiding or covering up the fact that David was brutal at times. And there are times in his story that he doesn't look like the hero. In fact, he looks like the villain. And he was the villain. He wasn't an ideal father. He lusted after and eventually committed adultery with Bathsheba. He arranged the murder of her husband Uriah. And if this was the only picture we had of David, he would go down in history as a vile human being. You know, you don't just wake up one day and say, I think I'll commit adultery today. David had a lot of roadblocks and a lot of signs along the way that should have told him, hey, this isn't a good idea. He should have walked away, he should have turned and went back in the house when he saw Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. Actually, if you look at that story, it says that he was at home while the warriors were in the field, his soldiers were in the field in battle. That wasn't supposed to happen. King didn't stay home when his soldiers were battling. So that was his first mistake. But he should have turned around. He shouldn't have let his eyes bounce when he saw you know, Bathsheba bathing. He should not have asked about her. He should not have abused his power. He should not have had sex with her. Nevertheless, he ignored the warning signs and did the unspeakable. And it wouldn't be long before everyone would know about this. And so David had to come up with a plan. And plan A was to get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, off the battlefield and back home. Then he could be with her. She would have the child. Everyone would think that it was his. And problem solved. Sin could be swept under the rug. David would keep his nobility and integrity and everything would be fine. But there's one thing he didn't count on. And that is the loyalty of Uriah. 2 Samuel 11 verses 8 through 11 reads, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah was loyal until the end. He couldn't leave his people on the field of battle while he slept in his own bed in the comfort of his own home. And so the plan failed and Uriah didn't take the bait. So David tries a different tactic. Plan B is to get Uriah um, to, to come home, get drunk and smear his name. I'll get Uriah drunk so that his judgment is blurred and then I'll send him home and he'll be a disgrace. That was David's plan. And in his drunken stupor, he'll lose his nobility. But Uriah refuses to go home, and so David turns to plan C. Plan C, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 14 reads, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and lie. Do you see what's going on here? David concocts this plan that when Uriah is on the field of battle and the fighting is at its fiercest, they're going to step back from him. Uriah is going to be left exposed and he's going to be killed. Now, these orders are sent to Joab by who? Uriah. I mean, is this some sick, twisted plot that David has? I mean, is this the arrogance of David showing itself? I mean, 
if anybody's the hero here, it's not David. He is the villain for sure. David writes to Joab containing the strategy for Uriah's arranged murder. Think about how sick this is. He's he's sending orders with Uriah knowing that it contains his death warrant. The godly man who defeated the Philistine and brought victory to Israel was now about as far away from God as you could get. So, enter Nathan the prophet. Somebody's got to get to David. Somebody's got to talk some sense into him. At this point, David has kind of moved on. He's forgotten about the sin and with Bathsheba, with Uriah. And so Nathan's, Nathan's got to come and remove the fig leaf. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished and grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock for his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. So again, David, at least in his own mind, had moved on from the whole Bathsheba-Uriah incident. And God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan to show him a a picture. And he, he shows him this word picture through this parable. He's painting a picture for David. He's he's showing him a mirror, basically. David's David's ready to have this man put to death because of the egregious sin he committed by taking that man's one little ewe lamb and killing it when he had a flock of his own. And Nathan says, David, that man's you. David could have been stoned for both offenses. Under the law, he deserved to be stoned for both those offenses. He's incensed at the actions of this fictional character that Nathan has brought up. And Nathan is removing the fig leaf and saying, I'm exposing your sin. This is you. Here's where I give David a lot of credit. We typically, again, only remember David for two two parts of his life. Defeating the giant Goliath and being defeated by the giant of sin. We also know him, though, as a man after God's own heart. But the only reason we know him as a man after God's own heart is because he owned his sin. Because when Nathan removed the fig leaf, when Nathan exposed his sin, David didn't try to justify. He didn't say, well, everybody does that. He didn't say, you know, Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing up there. What was I supposed to do? I'm a dude. What am I supposed to do? He didn't have Nathan put in prison. Didn't have him killed. Could have done that. David owns it. He owns his sin. I have sinned, he says. He didn't say we all mess up once in a while. He didn't say other people have done a lot worse. He owns it. He admitted responsibility. He called it what it was, and he accepted the consequences. I have sinned. I I have done wrong. I messed up. Those words will cost you, but they won't cost you near as much as trying to cover up your sin. And David, I think, provides us with three valuable keys when it comes to dealing with the sin in our lives. And number one is what I just said, own it. 
Again, David says, I have sinned. Emphasis on the I. He was a victim. He was the perpetrator in all this. There was no shedding the blame. He didn't point to Bathsheba and her role in the affair. He pointed the finger directly at himself, and he said, I did this. This is me. I am sorry, God. I am guilty. The second thing he did is he agreed with God, and that is key in dealing with sin. If God calls it sin, it doesn't matter what you call it. You agree with God. It took the help of a prophet, but David finally saw his sin the way that God saw his sin. Notice verses 9 and 10 of 2 Samuel 12. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This was dire and drastic. David needed to realize that, and so Nathan brought it to light. God was willing to deal with, with the sin of David by any means necessary, and David needed to grasp the gravity of the situation. We have to see sin the way God sees it. When we sin, it is evil in the sight of a holy God, and we cannot afford to miss that, to try to cover it up. Notice what David didn't say. He didn't, say, uh, he, he didn't just say, I have sinned. He said, I have sinned against who? Against the Lord. If you look at Psalm 51, verse 4, that his contrite prayer after his sin, He says, against you and you only I have sinned. Well, wait a minute. Didn't you sin against Bathsheba? Didn't you sin against Uriah? Yeah. But that didn't really matter. What mattered first and foremost is that he sinned against God. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You don't get that relationship right. Nothing else matters. And then the third thing I think he teaches us is let Christ's blood work. Apply Christ's blood to your sin. Only God can forgive your sin. Only Christ's blood will wash your sin away. Those three little words, I have sinned, are simple yet profound. And look what followed them. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin and you shall not die. I don't know about you, but I want to live. Not just here, but I want to live for all eternity with the Heavenly Father. And the only way that's going to be happening is if I'm washed in the blood of Christ. And being washed in the blood is preceded by a recognition that I have sinned. Responsibility leads to repentance, which leads to redemption, right? So I've got to own it. I've got to own it. This is me. It's all me. And then I've got to agree with God and then be washed. In the end, that's all that matters what I love about Hebrews chapter 11. All that matters is what God thinks of you. The court of public opinion can have it say you can be canceled. You can be remembered like Bill Buckner for one moment in your life, even though you did other great things. But all that really matters is what God thinks of you. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we can look at that and we can say, yeah, well, you know, Samson's there, but Samson was a horrible human being. How is Samson in the faith hall of fame? He's a terrible human being. Yeah, but he got something right. You think Samson's in heaven? Well, of course he is. He wouldn't be in the Faith Hall of Fame if he wasn't. David, Moses, whoever it is, we can look at him and we say, yeah, but you know, Moses committed murder. You know, David committed adultery. Doesn't matter. What matters is what God thinks of you. What matters is what's recorded here. That's all that matters. You may be forced to deal with consequences that are logical and natural based on what you have done, but at the end of the day, your spiritual status, what God says about you, is all that matters. And despite all that David had gone through, despite all that he had put others through, despite all that he had put God through, 
He was deemed a man after God's own heart, and we find his name among those faith heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. But I want you to notice what is said about him in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, so let me get this straight. David never committed another sin, except the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. That's it. Other than that, he was perfect. Is that what I'm supposed to take away from this? Well, remember, when we talk about hermeneutics, you can't translate or interpret a passage in a way that defies reality, unless, of course, it's a virgin birth, something like that. I mean, no one has ever committed only one sin, or even just two sins. So we know that's not true. We also know it's not true because we read about other recorded sins of David in Scripture. What this does mean is that when David had sinned against Bathsheba, with Bathsheba, when he had sinned in having Uriah killed, That was a time in David's life when he was living apart from God. That was a time in his life that he had turned his back on God. It was a high-handed thing. This wasn't a heat-of-the-moment sin. This wasn't a sin of ignorance. This wasn't an incident. This was David living life in open rebellion. That's the difference. He had sinned at other times, as we all do. We all have those moments where we slip up, where we stumble. That's not what's being talked about. David lived in open rebellion against God, and Nathan had to be sent on the scene to expose his sin, or he would have gone to hell. That's what makes this different. The sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah was a choice to live life on his own terms, and that makes it different than the other sins in his life. You thinking of a New Testament passage? 1 John, maybe? Chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There is a difference between a cleansed sinner and a condemned sinner. You mean I can walk in the light and still have sin? I can still commit sin? Yeah, I mean, that's what it's saying. But there's a difference in turning your back on God and living in open rebellion to him and walking in the light and still messing up from time to time. One, in fact, is living in darkness not even living in light. But I think we, we have this attitude sometimes, and maybe it's an overreaction to the once saved, always saved doctrine. But we have this reaction sometimes that, well, I, I'm, I'm walking in the light. Oh, I committed a sin. Boom, I'm in the darkness. Okay, I repented. Okay, I'm back in the light. Okay, I committed another sin. I'm back in the darkness. Okay, I repented. I'm back in the light. Folks, if that's the way it works, you will never have assurance. You will never have blessed assurance. As we walk in the light, we still stumble. When we have forgiveness, when we seek God and we own it, when we agree with God, we've been washed in the blood, we have forgiveness. There's a difference in a condemned sinner and a cleansed sinner. David illustrates this for us. There was a time, there was a time when he was a man after God's own heart. He sinned, but God says that he never turned aside from following him. But there was also a time when David did turn aside from following God, and he lived in open rebellion. He refused to do God's will. He refused to repent, and that was far different than following God but sinning from time to time. And the same is true with us. Walking in the light gives us assurance, or at least it should. And we don't have to live in fear that we're going to lose our salvation over one sin. We, we will fail, but as long as our heart confesses and acknowledges our sin and seeks to repent and turn from it, then we have that assurance 
It's when we seek to live life on our own terms where we get in trouble. And I think if David teaches us nothing else, he teaches us that failure should be a teacher, not an undertaker. Failure is a detour. It's not a dead end. A coach told me one time when I got into coaching, he said, you know, when you're about to be run out of town, just get ahead of everybody and make it look like you're leading a parade. That's good advice. Folks, I want you to hear me on this. If you hear nothing else tonight, I want you to hear this. God is a God of comebacks. He is a God of comebacks. He is the God of second chances. How do I know this? Well, because I've read my Bible. And you know this as well. The fact that the pages of Scripture are filled with flawed people, people who have failed, tells me something. It tells me this is the inspired Word of God because anyone else putting this together wouldn't have included the failures. <laughs> you wouldn't highlight the failures. You would only highlight the good. But that tells me that this is inspired because God wants us to see something here. He wants us to see that you are never beyond repair, that failure doesn't have to be fatal it also tells me that God is a God of grace. I mean, why include the failure? Because it sets up the grace. Remember, the Bible is a story of redemption. You know what a prerequisite for redemption is? Failure. You don't have to be redeemed if you don't fail. You don't need salvation if there's no sin. So I would say this to you. Own it. Own it. Agree with God. If he says it's sin, it's sin. And you get on the same page with him and apply the blood of Christ. And if you need to do that tonight, then come as we stand and as we sing.